Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. Saint in the City. Gregory's Constantinopolitan Adventures. As you might imagine, Constantinople held a great many promises for Gregory of Nazianzus. Here he was, one of the most educated and cultured men of his age, finally working in one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. This was no backwater province like Sassima, not even a moderately sized village like Nazianzus. Here was Gregory, in the heart of the imperial capital itself, with all the glitz and glamour that entailed. Remember as well that Gregory's brother had been a high-ranking court official under both Constantius and Julian. While his brother had passed before his arrival to the city, some family connections had persisted and were available to him. Gregory's life could have been one of the greatest reality shows of the ancient world. Saint in the city, holy men gallivanting about town, sipping mimosas at brunch with friends, shopping for the hottest new liturgical vestments, meeting charming women, and chastely talking about theology with them, since they had all chosen a celibate life. Yeah. Okay, actually, that would probably be a really terrible TV show. But Gregory did have some pretty cinematic things happen during his time in Constantinople. And while I can't justify putting those stories in a main episode, I can put them in a supplemental. Which is exactly what I am going to do. Because they are a vibe, as the kids say. I'm not exactly sure what vibe they are, but it's definitely a vibe, and you need to know about it. So, here we go. Story number one. The day, October 2nd, 379. The occasion, the festival of St. Cyprian, one of the most revered and important saints in the entire ancient world, and the patron saint for a lot of Gregory's congregation. The task, to preach an oration honoring St. Cyprian. The problem, Gregory kind of sort of had no clue who St. Cyprian was. He had no idea this feast day was going to be a big deal, and so he spent the week before it on vacation, having a perfectly chaste time in the countryside with another very religious woman, who happened to be one of his benefactors. Sort of like a priest going to Ibiza with a nun on December the 20th. And Gregory had a very nice time on vacation, until one of his associates tracked him down and told him that church this week was kind of going to be a big deal, and he should probably get to work. So Gregory rushed back and tried to cobble something together before the big day. I know, right? A total carry move. So anyway, Gregory came back and gave the oration, and it was a hot mess. Gregory managed to confuse Cyprian of Carthage, the saint that the whole day was about, with Cyprian of Antioch. It's not just us moderns who get confused when too many ancient people share the same name. Now, this confusion was a particularly big deal because Cyprian of Carthage was a beloved bishop and a martyr. Cyprian of Antioch was a former sorcerer who once sold his soul to the devil so that he could seduce a Christian woman. He ended up converting to Christianity when his romance failed. I know, right? Big Miranda energy. And apparently, he got his soul back in the process. Who knew the devil gave refunds? 
You can imagine that his congregation was real surprised when they were expecting to hear the speech about an honored martyr and bishop and instead heard about a bunch of wacky misadventures of a lovable rogue sorcerer who somehow wound up on the good side in the end. Now, Gregory apparently got the feedback and next year gave a much, much better sermon. But it's important to remember, I think, that even a brilliant man like Gregory of Nazianzus was fully capable of blowing off an assignment and turning in a rush job at the last minute. Story number two is a little less lighthearted. Gregory's presence in Constantinople was rather controversial, because after all, Constantinople already had a bishop, a Homoian chap named Demophilos. Gregory's very presence implied a challenge to his reign. And then Gregory prepared to baptize people into the faith, something that was the prerogative of the sitting bishop. For some people, this meant war. At the Easter vigil service held the Saturday night before Easter Sunday, a crowd gathered around his church and began to throw rocks through it. Now, Gregory will play off this event for laughs in most of his writings, but it was a big deal. The church was practically destroyed, and many people were injured. Now, Gregory counseled mercy and forgiveness. The last thing he wanted was to get the Christians of his city involved in a big legal battle, especially one in which the Nicene Christians were going to be seen preferring justice to love. Gregory knew perfectly well that if he was ever going to persuade people in this city to see things his way, he wasn't going to do it by suing them. Which made it all more surprising that Gregory was then hauled to court and accused of helping to spark the riots. Now, these accusations were made by the same Homoian leadership whose followers had just caused the riots. It's a cold move, worthy of Mr. Big's affair. But you do not spring a rhetorical trap on the greatest raider of the age. Gregory defended himself admirably and was quickly acquitted by the judge. And that same mercy Gregory got, he would extend to others as well. And that leads us to story number three. After the attack, many of Gregory's allies wanted to tighten up security at the church. You know, they would really like for people getting baptized not to get stoned instead. But Gregory said no. His allies said yes, and they wound up prevailing and hired a bunch of Egyptian sailors to guard them. Hopefully those sailors didn't go around humming any Aryan sea shanties, at least while on the clock. But apparently, they also didn't go around doing their job. Because sometime after this, Gregory was ill in bed, and a crowd had come into his room to wish him well. Because I know that when I'm sick, what I want most in all the world is for a crowd of strangers to be pressed in around my bed, breathing on me, telling me to get better so that I can get back to ministering to them. Gregory tolerated this ritual better than I would have, until one man, who was dressed quite poorly, meaning he was from the lower classes, collapsed in tears in front of him. As he watched this man cry, Gregory started crying too. Did we know why? Nope. Does he need a reason? He's crying. He's sad. Gregory's sad, because this guy's sad. And Gregory's sick. He's sad about that too. It's just a vibe, you know. And then this guy started talking. Apparently, this young man had been hired as an assassin to kill Gregory. When he got into the room, he realized he couldn't go through with it, so he collapsed and told the bishop the whole story about how, you know, I, man, I, I was totally going to kill you, man. I, I hope there aren't any hard feelings about that. 
And what follows next is, for me, the most extraordinary moment in all of Gregory's writings. In his shock, Gregory did the thing he knew he was supposed to do. He forgave the young man. He records himself as saying, May God save you. It is nothing special that I should be kind to you, my assassin, since I too have been saved. Your rashness has made you mine. Henceforth look to how you can be a credit to God and to myself. In many ways, I think the biggest testimony to Gregory's character is in this story's final word, myself. Gregory is not just telling this man he is forgiven, and to please go away and be forgiven, and, you know, go to church far, far, far away from him. That would still be remarkable, but it would not be extraordinary. No, Gregory says this man should learn to be a credit to God and to himself. In other words, Gregory is accepting this young man as a member of his community, someone who will be in his presence in the future. Letting your almost assassin into your congregation, that is extraordinary, and extraordinarily risky. But it paid off. Word of this story made its way around the city. We have no evidence that anyone else tried to assassinate him, and general animosity around Gregory's church reduced substantially. We'll continue with the rest of Gregory's political and theological adventures in the main story. But for this moment, I just wanted you to see Gregory for everything he was in Constantinople. A chaotic and sometimes forgetful orator, a persecuted but skilled defendant, and maybe, just maybe, even a saint. And for this saint in the city, the cobblestone streets of Constantinople formed the very road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Uh.